life of Elisha. So one of the exciting things we saw last time about Elisha is Elisha made some choices in his life. Really very early on, when Elijah called Elisha, he just walked over to him and laid his mantle over his shoulder. So he comes up and, and there's Elisha working in the field. He's got his team of oxen and there's probably a number of guys out working the fields with him. And, and Elijah just walks up to him. The Lord had told him, go and anoint Elisha as your assistant. He's going to be the guy that's going to take over after you. Which means to Elijah, my time's almost up. So he goes over and he, he, he walks past Elisha. And all he does is throw the mantle over his shoulder. The, that's that little uh, skin he would wear around his neck. The camel skin that he would wear. And he just kind of threw it over him. And then dragged it off of him and put it back on and kept walking. And the Bible says, Elisha runs, stops him. He understands, you know, he's being called. And it reminds me of exactly what Jesus did when he walked by those guys at the, at the fishing hole. And they all had their fishing nets and they were all pulling in their catch. And Jesus just walks up and says, come and follow me. And those guys just go. Elisha does the same thing, but he does something a little bit special. Elisha, unlike the disciples, he takes those, the team of oxen and he takes the, the plow and all the stuff and he builds an altar. He uses the wood from the plow to make a fire. He kills the oxen. He boils them, boils the meat and gives it to all the people around. What I like about that is Elisha burns the bridges. There's no going back. I don't have a team of oxen anymore. I don't have that old life. All I have is the new life I have following Elijah. And that's important because you'll remember last week we see Elijah as he knows that God's about to bring him into heaven. So Elijah is an incredible character in the scripture. We see Elijah being raptured, being taken up, taken up into heaven. And so every stop, Elijah goes to all the schools of the prophets. Three schools of the prophets. So he stops at each of the three schools of the prophets to visit them and probably to say his goodbyes because, you know, he's like the father over the schools of the prophets, so he's like the head. And, and as he stops at each one and visits each one, he tells Elisha, just stay here. You don't need to keep coming. This is, this is enough. And it's, it's incredible because as we look at that, what we see in, is Elijah saying, like so many other people, uh, this is as far as I want to go. This is as much as God as I ever want to experience. This is it. You know, I'm, I'm okay with where my life's at. I don't want any more. And each stop was significant. Remember, he stopped at Gilgal. That's a place of, of consecration. He comes to Gilgal. That's where the men in days of old, before they came into the promised land, dealt with the flesh. Remember, they, they were all circumcised before the battle. And so sometimes the example is sometimes people come to that place where we deal with our flesh, you know, the my own sin, my sin nature. And they, they deal with it or they're facing it or they're struggling with it, but they, they never go past. They just stop. And they stay in that battle forever. They, there's never a, a victory for it. So Elijah goes to Elisha, just stay. But Elisha says, no. I want to keep going. I want to keep moving forward. I want more. I want all that God has for me. So Elisha goes. They come to the next place. The next place is Bethel. That signifies the presence of God. Bethel, the, the, the word means the house of God. It originally gets its name because Jacob, when he's running away from his brother Esau, when he stole the birthright, 
He comes to a place and he falls down. He's so tired. He goes to sleep. And maybe you remember the story from Sunday school. He uses a big stone for a pillow. And when he dreams, he dreams of God. He sees that Jacob's ladder, right? With the angels ascending and descending upon it. And, and he wakes up and he says, man, God was here and I didn't know it. It signifies the presence of God, the presence of God being with us. So some guys in their walk with the Lord, they come and they deal with the flesh and they move forward and they come to that place where they're really experiencing the presence of God. And I don't know if you've had opportunity to do that or not. I, have, for the last three weeks at least, have really had a lot of really neat experiences just in my private prayer time seeking the Lord where His presence has been there and I don't want to go. I just want to stay in that place. Sometimes that's where we'll go. We'll, we'll deal with the flesh. We'll come to the place where we're experiencing God's presence, but we don't want to go any further. That's it. So we stay there. So Elijah looks at Elisha and says, stay here. Just hang here. And Elisha says, no, I want everything that God has for me. Because as soon as we, we begin to experience God's presence, there's a, pers- there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason behind that. Why has God been expressing himself why have we been experiencing his presence because the next town's coming jericho that's the place of confrontation you remember the battle of jericho right the walls marching around the walls doing things god's way that's the place of battle the bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in god for what the pulling down of strongholds so we experience the presence of god but if we'll continue to move on god's going to take us to the battlefield where we will do battle And we won't do battle based on our might or our power or our ability to swing a sword. It'll be based on our ability to submit to the Spirit, allow the Spirit to have control, to take direction from God. You and I, if we were doing the battle of Jericho, none of us would have said, let's march around the city. We would have said, we'd have built up plans. How are we going to take the city? How are we going to conquer the wall? How are we going to get over? But we want to be in a place where we're submitted to the Lord and we can hear from the Lord and that the Lord guides us. And some people come to that, and that's as far as they want to go. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. And Elisha said, no, I want more. And then they crossed the Jordan River. When you cross the Jordan River, it's a, it's a symbol throughout Scripture of entering into rest. The rest. Why, how can you enter into rest as you cross the Jordan? Remember, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, and that's when all the battle began, right? Remember, they had the Battle of Jericho, 31 hostile nations to deal with there in the, in the land of Canaan before God gave them the, the nation of Israel. They have battle to go. So how can you say that's God's rest? Because who fought the battle? God did. It's the expectancy of God being with us, showing up, doing the things we expect Him to do. And what we, if we will continue to move forward with the Lord, not only is God going to deal with our flesh, not only are we going to experience God's presence, not only are we going to come to the place where we do battle for the Lord and pulling down strongholds, but we'll come to a place ultimately where our faith has grown and we are living in the expectation that God's going to show up. No matter what we see, no matter if the doctor says cancer, he doesn't say. No matter what struggles we might face in life, if we've come to that point, we are expecting to see the hand of God move. Either to deliver or to give us the strength to endure, but we're expecting to see the hand of God move. And that's ultimately the, the story of our Christian walk. Do we want to continue? And it starts with this guy, Elisha, who was willing to burn his bridges and say, I'm never going back. 
I'm never going back. Jesus, over and over again, he says to us, if you want to be my disciples, you must forsake all. Now, in that word all, you can put whatever you want. But it's somewhere listed in the scriptures of something that God wants us to forsake. What he means is not that we all have to quit our jobs and quit everything and just live solely for him. What he means is your priorities change. If he is my God and Savior, if he's my Lord, then my priorities are for him. They're for him. See, Jesus calls for that same kind of dedication where we are willing to burn the bridges behind us. What's the bridge to? The bridge isn't to success and money and stuff. The bridge is to our old life. The bridge is to materialism. The bridge is to all those things we're trying to escape in our flesh. That we burn that bridge, turn our back on that behavior, and we go forward for everything that God has for us. Everything. So often we'll stop one spot along the way. We could spend years in Gilgal or years in some of those journeys as we go and, and actually say the words, this is as much as I want to experience about God. Maybe because we're afraid, maybe because of other things we're dealing with. Elisha's a man just like you and I, nothing special about him. He just burned the bridges and was willing to go after Elijah and ultimately the mantle of God with everything he had. What God promised Elisha was, if you see Elijah taken up into heaven, I'll give you a double portion. The double portion was the portion that belonged to the firstborn, the one who's supposed to carry on. The one who would carry on for the family would receive a double portion. That's just how it worked. So, Scripture tells us in in 2 Kings chapter 2 that that's what he saw. He saw Elijah taken up in a fiery chariot. Taken up into heaven. The words in the Hebrew are kind of interesting. It is the Ruach of Yahweh. The Ruach of, of Yahweh. It's, it, it means literally the wind of God. The wind of God. Or that Ruach is a, a word commonly used throughout the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit. So we have the, the Ruach taking him up. And so Elijah picks up the mantle and he walks over to the Jordan River. And you remember when they crossed the Jordan River, Elijah just slapped it with the mantle. It parted and they walked across. So Elisha, he's got the mantle. He's pretty sure he's got the power. He walks over and he takes the mantle and he says, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he hits the water and God says, Right here. Water parts. And Elisha goes across on dry land. In the view of some of the sons of the prophets who were following. So let's take a look at it. We'll see. And we'll pick it up in uh, verse 14. It says, Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elijah crossed over. You know what's exciting about this? I don't know if you guys like to write in your Bibles. I always encourage it. But what's exciting about this is Elisha's first miracle is Elijah's last miracle. His last miracle was to part the Jordan. So... The one who came after, the one who followed, sought to do the same miracle that Elijah had done. What was the last miracle that Jesus did? He healed someone hurt by one of his disciples. Remember Malchus? And he he put the ear back on. 
And in our lives, as we seek to follow Jesus, because Jesus, like Elijah, says the same thing to us. Come and follow me. And he'll go with us as, lo- as far as we're willing to go. As far as we're willing to go. And, and I think most of us, we're barely scratching the surface. There's so much more that God wants to, to show us, that God wants to work through us and do for us. But the question to us is, are we in the business of hurting or healing? Because Jesus, well, he was in the business of healing, of, of repairing, of helping. And that's the thing as we follow him. Jesus also said, they will know you are my disciples. How? By your love one for another. He didn't say by your ability to understand doctrine or theology or what size words you can use. He said the way you love each other. People will know your mind because of the way you love each other. Why? Because he loved his disciples. The Bible says he loved them to the uttermost. There's not a place beyond that. The Bible tells in John 3.16, right? God, what? So loved that he gave. So if we're following him, this ought to be the attributes that are, are pouring out of our life. That, that we have made a choice. We, we kind of cut our ties from the old world and we're headed toward Jesus. And we want to be like him. We want to be healers, not people who are hurting. We want to be people who love others. Who look for opportunity to, to pour into people's lives. That's who Jesus was. Now that doesn't mean there's never a place for confrontation. We know very well that Jesus confronted the Pharisees, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Your, your whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That's not necessarily very nice. That's the, there is a place for confrontation. But I want you to go, when you got time, and read through the life of Jesus, and you measure up how much confrontation, how much love. And see if that's the, the image that we portray. Because then you'll know, am I a disciple? Am I following Jesus? Am I following His teaching? Am I doing the things He laid out? I'll know because I should look like him. I should talk like him. I should be like him. John says in 1 John, if you say you are his disciple, you ought to walk like he walked. That we look like our master. That we look like him. And so that's what we see here. Elisha looks like Elijah, right? Wearing the mantle, doing the same kind of miracles. It's kind of exciting. We want to be able to follow the Lord in the same way. Verse 15 says, Now the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, and they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. Now, now they know the sons of the prophets, which are the guys in the three schools of the prophets that Elijah started. Now they know who the new headmaster is. It's Elisha. So they bow down to him. So they're saying, you're, you're now the father. And then they said to him, look, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Lest perhaps the spirit of God has taken him up and cast him upon a mountain or into some valley. And he said, uh, you shall not send anyone. He says, they say, we need to go look for Elijah. They saw from a distance this crazy tornado, fiery chariot. You know, and Elijah's body go up. But they don't acknowledge that God, they can't imagine that God took him bodily into heaven. Oh, surely the Lord didn't take him bodily into heaven. So, so the Lord brought him up, pulled his spirit out of his body, and has cast his body somewhere. And we want to go look for it so we can bury him. But Elisha knows. I was there. He's not anywhere. He's in heaven. He's not here. He did not die. That's kind of an important concept for those of us who 
read the scripture and understand the, the teaching of the rapture. Why is that important? Because anytime you have a concept or doctrine in, in the New Testament, you want to have an example of it in the Old. And you have two. Elijah never died, went to heaven. Who else? Enoch never died, went to heaven. So we see examples of people being raptured or taken to heaven bodily. Just like they are. Brought before the Lord God Almighty. So, Elisha knows what's going on. He says, don't send anybody. When they urged him till he was ashamed. Now, that word ashamed is an interesting word. In a Hebrew, almost every time you see it in your Bible, it means disappointed. It's, it's synonymous with disappointment. When the Bible says, if you put your trust in the Lord, you shall not be ashamed. It means you're not going to be disappointed. When you get to heaven and you see the Lord face to face, you're not going to say, oh man, this was a rotten deal. No, you won't be disappointed. You're going to be stoked. And so here you have Elisha telling him, you don't need to go. You don't need to go look for the body. And they want to go look for the body. And so he gets disappointed in, the, in his students. You guys aren't listening to me. So he lets them go. He, he, he gets ashamed, he gets disappointed, he says, send them. Therefore they sent 50 men and they searched for three days but did not find him. Now Elisha's not shocked. He knows they're not going to find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you don't go? That's the I told you so statements. So you know there are times when you've given someone advice they didn't take but they kept wanting to go do Whatever else, well, it's the same thing for Elisha. He understood what that was like. He's got students. He, he wants to teach them. He wants them to understand that Elijah's in heaven. They don't quite believe him. They think maybe just the spirit. So they had to go search over hill and dale for the body of Elijah. But they didn't find him. It says in verse 19, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation in this city is, is pleasant. As my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. Now literally, this water was causing sickness, miscarriages in the area. It was so poisonous. They have this beautiful city and everything's cool, but their main source of water is poison. That's a problem, right? You have a hard time having a paradise, you know, like a tropical paradise everybody wants to come to. If they come to, drink the water and die. That's Nobody's going to come again. So this is what they're dealing with. They got poison in the water. And so they say this to Elisha. And he says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. I love Elisha because he does this kind of stuff over and over again. Which then makes me go, okay, why the new bowl and what's the deal with the salt? Well, we look at the new bowl and we see so many things in Scripture, especially New Testament concepts, that talk about, for now we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. So he grabs something new, not something old. The healing's going to come through something new. The healing of the water, the understand, the ability to, to understand or comprehend, it's going to come through something new. And he puts salt in it. Now, while you're thinking about that, just hold your finger there and open up to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we have Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. And he has a little thing he would like us to remember about salt. In chapter 5, I think it's around verse 13. If I can get my page to turn, we'll all find out together. 5.13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, only to be thrown out 
and trampled under feet of men. Salt. You are the salt. Why does he tell believers, you are the salt of the earth? Well, because salt is a preservative. So things last when they're salted. It gives uh, preservation. The other thing it does is it increases thirst. It increases thirst. So he puts salt in it. Salt. The idea being, as he looks at the healing of the water, in our salt, our, our speech, the scripture tells us in Colossians, our, our speech should be seasoned with salt. That means, does our speech, the way we talk, the things we do, make people thirsty for Jesus? Is it a preservative for the, the way we live, that people look and say, man, I want to continue on in that line. He puts salt in this bowl, and all he does, it says, he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt in. And that's the same thing Jesus does. He takes you and I to a world that's full of poison, a world that doesn't have any answers, to a world that if you drink that water, you're going to die. And he puts us in, the salt, in a new bowl, new creation. And he takes that new creation, he dumps it in the water, and that salt doesn't really do anything for water. You're not going to be able to purify water with salt. But what it does do, he shows us that picture. My salt, my people in this poison is going to make it right it's going to make it clean it's going to make it pure and that that stream is still pure today the same way that that elisha pours the salt in jesus takes us and pours us into a world that is in need of living water water jesus said come unto me any who thirst and i will give you drink the water that Jesus offered was that water that for which we would never thirst again. Remember what he told the woman at the well? If you drink this water, if you knew who it was standing before, you would ask for me a living water. And you'd never thirst again. And she's thinking, I'll never have to draw water ever again. But Jesus is saying in a relationship with him, it will satisfy our lives. It satisfies us. And Elisha, as we look at his example, we see that same thing. Is he casts the salt into the poison. The Lord casts us into the world. And that's what we're supposed to do, drive people to drink the living water. He pours the salt in. It says, and it went out to the source of the water, cast the salt there. And he said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed this water. And from it there will be no more death or barrenness. Everything's going to grow. And the, and the water was healed. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha of Elisha, which he spoke. Now after this, he's moving and we're starting to see Elisha move and we're seeing these, these miracles and I think a lot of signs that we can begin to understand as we look at them. In verse 23, you have an interesting story. It says, so he went up from there to Bethel. You remember Bethel, the, the place of God's presence. And as he was going up to the road, some youths came out of the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, that doesn't translate so much for us. Well, maybe for some of us it translates okay. <clears throat> for others of us it doesn't translate so well. What's going on? Okay, first off, the youth. Some of them, some Bibles say little children. The word in the Hebrew is, is nahar. It means, it can mean someone from up to the age of 39. So it's not necessarily little kids. Sometimes we picture this as little kids. I think the, the New King James does a pretty good job by calling them youths. Young people, but not super young. They're just not old and wise. 
And when they come out and they start shouting at the man of God, they start shouting, go up. You hear that phrase, go up? Now, who had just gone up into heaven? Elijah, right? So in essence, as they're coming up and say, go up, you bald head, go up. But bald, calling somebody a bald head then was bad. It was, it was uh, quite the put down. Now today, you know, some guys don't mind. But some guys might sock in a nose if you call them a bald head. So whether they're bald headed or not doesn't make any difference. So they're telling them, go up. What they're saying in this, what's, what's really being mentioned in the phrase, is we don't want you, the man of God, we don't want the Lord, just go up like he did. Go up into heaven, get away, we don't want to hear your words. It's, a, it's an attitude of rejection. And when we look at that, the attitude of rejection coming from rejecting what the Lord has, we discover something interesting that we find in the Scriptures. If you turn with me to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, there's a, a section of scripture there in Second Peter that I think uh, gives us a little bit of insight um, to kind of what's happening here. In Second Peter chapter two, you should be familiar, many of you, with this scripture. It says, "Did I say Second Peter? Maybe I mean First Peter." Ooh. Oh, come on! I know I marked it. Some days. There we go. Second Peter, <laughs> chapter three. Yeah. Okay. Look at at verse three. It says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts. So, what I would say about these young men is, they're mockers. They're scoffers. They're making fun of them. They're mocking. Uh, who Elisha is. Ultimately, they're mocking God, the, the one whom, the master whom Elisha serves. So they're, they're like scoffers. They're, they're making fun of what he's all about. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So he's saying, hey, one day, just like these guys, scoffers will come into our world and say, where is Jesus? You've been saying Jesus is coming back for a couple thousand years. Where is he? Everything continues like it always has. That's what they're saying. goes on in verse 5 to say, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the, in the water. So by, they willfully forget the creation. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They willfully forget the flood. And then, but the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We go down to verse verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that anyone would perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. What we're looking at, the scripture says, one day scoffers will come, mockers, making fun of the faith. And ultimately what they're headed for is the judgment, the judgment of the tribulation period, the ultimately where the earth is going to melt, the destruction of all things. So, the, the, in essence, what Peter is saying for us is when those mockers and scoffers come, they're headed for tough times, tribulation, trials. And you see the same thing. We go back to 2 Kings and we look at this. They're yelling at them. They're rejecting the Lord. They're making fun of them. They're, 
their uh, uh, scoffing what he's talking about. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youth. So there must have been a lot of kids, a lot of young people that were a part of it. And as a result of their mocking and scoffing, they were mauled. They, they came upon tough times. I, I don't want to be mauled by a bear. And uh, so I'm not going to mock God. <laughs> so same kind of a thing going on here. They, they, they mock him and 42 of them are, are finding themselves in very difficult times. Just like those who scoff. And won't put their faith in Christ will find themselves in very difficult times. Called tribulation period. You want to know what it looks like? Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Read it. It doesn't sound like paradise to me. Sounds like a place I don't want to be. Well, as the scripture goes on to us, it says, Then he left there, went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So, we see the beginning of Elisha's reign. He's, He's doing some cool things. God's moving in him. And then we come to uh, an interesting story about Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Look at it in chapter 3. Now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Now, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father. Remember, his father was Ahab, the most wicked king. So he wasn't as bad as Ahab. And it says he's not as bad as his mom. His mom was Jezebel. Jezebel led the people into false worship, worshiping Baal, and Ahab just did whatever Jezebel said, which was typically bad things, so he ends up being a pretty wicked king. But his son is not as bad as them. It says, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. So there was a sacred pillar in the middle of the capital city in Samaria, set up for the worship of Baal, and Jehoram takes it down. So he did that. Because he did that, he's not as bad. He's not as wicked as them other guys, as, as his father and his mother. But nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam is a false religious system. Throughout man's history, rulers have used religion to um, control the masses. I don't know if you're aware of that. But they, throughout history... Far back as you can go when you have government, they use religion to control people. Who was Pharaoh to the, the, the people of Egypt? He was God incarnate. And so that way he commanded their obedience. What do you have in Rome? It was a little thing called Caesar worship, right? Where they had to take a pinch of incense and declare Caesar to be their God and they could be a good citizen of Rome. It's something that has always been a part of mankind. And the same thing here. What Jeroboam did is he came and he said, Listen, I want to control the people, so I'm going to take Judaism, or I'm going to take the worship of God, Yahweh, that happens down there in Jerusalem, and I'm going to tangle it up with a bunch of other religions here so that the people just can have a smorgasbord, take what they want, do what they want, and it's all good, and they can hang out here, and everything will be cool, and they won't leave, and so he developed a false religious system. Jehoram keeps it. In fact, every king in the north, they always do it. They stay in that. Well, what's the big deal? When we study scripture, guys, and we begin to look at the end times, One of the things that we see in in eschatology, the study of end times, is the Bible talks about a beast that's going to rise up out of the sea. The beast is one of the 
names for the Antichrist. A, a one world ruler who eventually comes on the scene. And he is going to have a false prophet. And what's the false prophet going to do? He's going to develop a religion to control all the people. And he's going to set up the Antichrist, ultimately, as being God. And the one whom the people must worship and take his mark so that they can be a good citizen of the world. Now, a lot of those, a lot of those things, guys, in the world, the stage is set. A lot of people would be all for having, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying a one world government is in and of itself bad. Because one day when Jesus Christ returns, guess what we're going to have? A one world government with one leader, except it's really going to be God. And so we won't have to worry about them being rotten and doing people wrong because Jesus will reign with perfect righteousness and justice and, and mercy and grace. So we'll see that one day. That's not, it's not a wrong thing to desire, but the, the guy who's going to come first is going to be the wrong guy. And people will put their faith and trust in him. Just like Jeroboam did before. So remember, when we talk about concepts in the scripture and we talk about these ideas, rather than just pulling something out of the air, we ought to be able to say, well, if this is what God's talking about, then I bet he gave us examples of it in the Old Testament. And we look, and sure enough, in the northern kingdom, they did the same thing. So Jehoram, this is what he did. He had a false religious system. Now look at verse 4. Now Misha... The king of Moab was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 uh, rams. So he had to give them 100,000, and he had to give them the wool from 100,000. That's a pretty stiff tax. Misha is the king of Moab, and because Ahab was pretty powerful, he did whatever Ahab wanted. But now Ahab's kid he's not afraid of. So he rebels against Ahab's kid. It's interesting. Let me tell you why it is. Because they, in, the archaeologists have dug up something called the Misha steel. Something that this king wrote on a piece of basalt stone. He engraved this exact story that we're going to read on this basalt stone. All the way, the whole thing is on there. Just like the Bible talks about. It's pretty incredible. And it was such an incredible find that a lot of people got excited about it. And so they began to bring people from a variety of different museums to come and to, to lay claim to this incredible find that they found out there in the middle of the desert. And the Arabs who were in the area where it had been found, they decided, if we bust this into a bunch of pieces, we could sell everybody a piece. So they shattered it into a bunch of pieces and now several museums have a piece of the Misha steel. But the Misha steel, before they shattered it, they took a rub. And off of that rub, you know what I mean? They, on, the, on the hieroglyphs, they're able to kind of put, the, put it all together. And it's the story that we're about to read from that, that king's point of view. Right? It's not going to talk about the God stuff. But it talks about the battle and the kings and the things that happened. So it's kind of cool. Well, it says in verse 5, When it happened when Ahab died, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king, King Jerome, you know what I mean, went out of Samaria at the time and mustered all of Israel. So he gathers his army. And he went and he sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Now, Jehoshaphat's going to say yes. 
And he said yes to Ahab. And people bust Jehoshaphat over, you know, doing stuff with these wicked, these wicked kings. And ultimately, God brings judgment because he keeps helping out these, these wicked kings. But there's a reason behind it. See, Jehoshaphat's going to go because Moab has attacked him. In second, or in First Chronicles chapter 20, one of those, First or Second Chronicles chapter 20, you see the battle where they come at, Moab comes against Jehoshaphat. And does battle with him. So as a result, you know, this is a, this is a, a matter of foreign policy. He is going to join up with, uh, with Jehoram. In fact, he says the same thing he said to his dad. He said, uh, uh, I will go up with you. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. And he said to them, which way shall we go? And so he said, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So they come up with this great idea. They're going to go to the south. So you got Moab here, and in the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, and here's Moab. And they say, what we're going to do is we're going to come around underneath them. Because if we come around underneath them, we'll be between Edom and Moab. And both Edom and Moab have been conquered by Israel, so they can have control. If they go north, around the other way, there's this city, there's this country called Syria. Syria they don't control. So if they come up and they come between Syria and Moab and they turn to try to fight Moab, there's a chance Syria will attack them from behind. So they go south. And south takes them through a lot of desert. Now, I know you guys try to pull this thing that you live in the desert. If you ever want to know what a real desert looks like, I'll be happy to take you to my old house. I took Jeff Masters. He knows it is a forbidden wasteland. You have no idea why anybody would live there. When, I, when I'm talking about desert like this, I'm talking about sand, and that's it. No trees, not even cactus, no weeds, nothing. No place that you want to go. That's where they're going. They go south that way through the wilderness. And it says, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. So seven days of marching, but they got a problem. Look what happens. And there was no water for the army, nor the animals that followed them. So they drank all the water they could carry. Because if you've ever been hiking in the blistering sun Sahara, you drink a lot of water. And they run out of water. Now, all throughout the desert, there's these things called wadis. And wadis are little wash beds, little little dried up creeks. And when it rains in the, in, just so you know, when it rains in the desert, the, there's it usually dumps real hard, real fast, and it can't be all absorbed into the water. So the water will flow into those wadis, and they cause flash floods. But they just flow out into the desert, and then go into the sand, and still nothing grows. So. They, that's what they, they come to these wadis and all the wadis are dry and they don't have anything to drink. There's, there's no water for them. So they're in distress. And so it says in verse 10, and so the king of Israel, now remember the king of Israel doesn't worship Yahweh. He's into this mixed religion that he put together or that Jeroboam put together. And now all of a sudden he's going to use God's name. Now this is what this means. The only time people who don't know, don't know God use God's name is to what? To curse. Now, you don't believe it. An atheist gets mad and he's going to curse with the name of God. Why? He don't believe in God. Why use that word? You could use any word. Why you got to pick on God? Why you got to throw his name out there? It's the same thing that Jehoram does. Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. 
That's Bible speak for God hates me. That's what he's saying. God hates me. He brought me here to kill me. He's brought us here to kill us. I knew God brought us here to kill us. Now, Jehoram doesn't even believe in God. He doesn't even believe in him. But all of a sudden, God's on his mind. And he uses God's name. You'll notice that the word there in verse 10 is capital L-O-R-D. He uses the name Yahweh. He uses God's name. So he's aware of God's name, but he doesn't believe in him. But Jehoshaphat said... Now, Jehoshaphat, he's the king from the south, and he's a believer. He, he follows the Lord. He serves God. So Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that may inquire the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now, I don't want to get too crazy, but I want you guys to start to see these little pictures as we go through the Old Testament. Who introduces Elisha to those who are looking for him? An unnamed servant. A servant whose name is not important. He just says, hey, Elisha's here. And a lot of times we can see Elisha as being, at different times, picturing for us Christ by some of the things he does. Well, who introduces Christ to, to the world? The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak forward in his name. He is an unnamed servant. Why, why am I even bringing that up? In your studies, as you go through the Old Testament, look. Be watchful for the unnamed servant. Why? His name, he's going to come up over and over again. For example, who picked Isaac's bride? The bride for Isaac. An unnamed servant who went and found the bride. It's the same thing that we see, an unnamed servant. The Holy Spirit is the unnamed servant who gathers the bride for Jesus Christ. So you'll see little pictures. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's a big deal, but it's just interesting how often someone is going to be introduced by an unnamed servant. And anytime I see that phrase, it always reminds me of the Holy Spirit. So this guy says, Elisha is here, who was a servant. He was faithful in the little things. He used to just pour water on Elijah's hands when he needed to wash his hands. But now he's the prophet. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, who's not very happy about it, and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, they all go down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel. So Elisha starts talking. Now, the king of Israel, bad guy, right? So everybody good. King of Israel, bad. King of Judah, good. King of Edom, doesn't really matter at all. So the king of Israel, Elisha sees him coming and listen to what he says. What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, the prophets of your mother, But the king of Israel said to him, No, please, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So he's really bad-mouthing God. Elisha says, Why are you coming to me? You don't believe in God. Go ask them other guys. You know, go go seek whoever it is that you're following. If you're, you know, into Jean Dixon, go ask her. Don't ask me. Go ask her. Go, Go read your, what do they call them things? Horoscopes, yeah. Because they'll, they'll answer all your problems, right? Go read your horoscope. Don't come to me. That's, in essence, what the prophet is saying to this guy. When he, and he says to the prophet, Ah, oh, God's just bringing us out here to kill us. So, look what Elisha says. Elisha said to him, As the Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, if it was not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah... I would not look at you or see you. So only because Jehoshaphat's there 
is the prophet going to deliver the word of God? Because Jehoshaphat is a godly man. Listen, don't ever lose sight of this. A lot of people think that they find themselves in a situation. Maybe you find yourself in a marriage. And in your marriage, you got saved and your husband never did. Or your husband got saved and the wife never did. And you find yourself in a bad place. The Bible says that the one believer in that relationship sanctifies the family. What's that mean? You are sanctifying influence. If you're not there, God's not there at all. That's why Paul would say to those for whom a, a, the, the wife or the husband is willing to have you stay, he says, stay. Because your influence may rub off on him. Now, he didn't say if you're a believer, marry an unbeliever. That's not the same thing. But if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, we got married and, and everything was normal, now I'm a believer and, and she or he's not. Or maybe you're in business and you were in business, but you get saved and you find that your priorities in life are changing any number of things. The Bible says the one believer sanctifies the group. A lot of times people, they just want to leave their family behind and just say, well, forget it. I'm just not going to have anything to do with them. If you leave your family behind, there's no sanctifying influence. If you stay, you become a sanctifying influence. Now, I'm not suggesting you force yourself. If they don't want you, the Lord says, then go. But if you're able... Stay. Stay in that. So Jehoshaphat, just because he's there, God's going to speak. Just because he's there. Even though Jehoram doesn't believe. So here's what, it's kind of cool. Here's what Elisha says. Bring me a musician. And it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Elisha's mad about Jehoram. So he says, i got to get my head right. So he says, hey, let's worship. So they have a little worship session. You know, they bring a guy out. With a guitar, of course. They had guitars in. And he comes out and he plays and sings a little for Elisha. And, and Elisha feels the hand of the Lord. The Spirit comes upon him and he's given a word. And so he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Now, picture, you're standing in the middle of sand. You're probably near a wadi. That means one of them dry creek beds. And the Lord says, Dig ditches. Now, maybe you're thinking, I could dig deep enough and come up with some water. The Lord says, dig ditches. And thus says the Lord, you will not see wind, nor will you see rain, but the valley will be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals will drink. Now, the, the cool thing about this is, is God has them be a part of the solution. What's a part of the solution? He says, dig. Dig ditches. They could have went out, been all pouty, and dug one ditch, right? How many ditches would have got filled then? One. Or you can go out and say, the Lord told me to dig ditches. You can dig as many ditches as you can. Then how many ditches are going to be filled? All the ditches that you dug. When God directs and when God gives us, we can despise the word that he's given us. I don't like this and this is no good. And we have a lousy attitude and we're not going to experience a blessing. Or we can be obedient to what God's saying. Go dig the ditches and watch God fill them. Watch him fill those things. It says in verse 18, and this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So basically the Lord says, while you're going through Moab, wipe everything out that you're crossing, going across. So it says, now it happened in the morning 
when the grain offering was to be offered, suddenly water came by the way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. So that night they dug their ditches. There's a flash flood somewhere they don't see. The water flows down through that wadi, fills up their ditches. They got all the water they need. So they're able to water the, water the flocks. Then they rose up early in the morning. The sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. Now I wonder why they saw the water as being red. Well, the Bible tells us that the water flowed through Edom. Do you see that? The Edom is famous for red earth. Red dirt. Red clay. So the water runs through that red clay, fills up the ditches. And then you have the sunrise shining on it. And it just looks red. It looks red. Well, the Moabites see it and, and they think it's blood. They said, this is the blood of the kings. They're, they're struck swords and have killed one another now. Therefore, Moab to the spoil. So while the army's drinking water, the Moabites think they're fighting each other and we can just go clean up the mess. So they don't organize. They just take off running, you know, because the first guy there gets whatever he can find of what's left. So they run all helter-skelter toward them. So they're coming all crazy. And it says, so when they came into the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. So they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. They whooped them. They whooped the Moabites. So wherever they went, they're whooping the Moabites. And as they go, they destroyed the cities. And each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up the springs of water, cut down the trees. But they left the stones of Kir Haraseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So now, here's what I want you to see. The Moabites all retreated to one giant fortress called Kir Hereseth. And they're in there. And the, the, the Israeli people, they can't get in. And so they got slingers, guys throwing stones over the walls. And that's, that's how they're fighting. Well, it says, When the king of Moab saw that the battle was, was, uh, was too fierce... For his men, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom, but they could not. So then the king of Moab gets his 700 best guys. And he says, look, we can't fight all these guys at once. Let's go just go get Edom. They're probably the weakest, so they go out for Edom. But it doesn't matter. God's with them. They can't defeat them. And so they're losing, and they all retreat back into Kir, Hiraseth. Now listen to this. Verse 27. Then the king took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. The king goes out on a wall and has a human sacrifice. He kills his, his son. I don't know how old this son is, if he's, if he's young, if he's little, if he's old. It really doesn't make any difference. He kills him and burns him on an altar on top of the wall, seeking to uh, ask his god, Chemosh, which was their god, to deliver them from the battle. And ultimately what the scripture says is that Israel and Judah are so horrified that, they offered, that he offered up his own child that they stop, pack up, and go home. And that's exactly what the Misha steel says happened. The Misha steel, however, gives all the glory to Chemosh, saying, I sacrificed my son, and they left, and Chemosh gave us a great victory. But ultimately, all that happened is, the, what the Bible says, is Israel was so 
For Judah especially and Jehoshaphat, that's a big deal. You don't kill your children. That's a horrible thing. And so to be involved in a battle that led someone to the desperation where they killed their own child as a sacrifice to the gods took all the fight out of them. There was great indignation against Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, the the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat says, I'm done. The king of Edom says, I'm done. And they leave. And Israel can't do it themselves. They leave. Everybody just retreats. And the battle's over. So they win the battle where the Lord told them they would win it. But as they come to the end, all the fight in them is, is taken out. Now as we look at the story and we see the movement of, of Elisha and we see all the, the, the messages that we see from Elisha to the two kings. I want you to look. You got Jehoshaphat, the one following the spirit but probably not in the best place. He, he, he probably shouldn't have been there. And you got Jehoram who doesn't care about God at all. And you got because of the, the Je, uh, Jehoshaphat being there, God brings his influence and delivers and shows himself to Jehoram. Water just comes out of nowhere, flowing down the wadi, fills up the holes, and they have water. The Moabites make a big mistake, and so they win. They win that battle. And, and then they move forward with obedience. But what we don't see, we never see Jehoram as a result of God stepping in and, and giving him that deliverance of ever changing his ways. Here's what God's word tells us. If we cannot believe his word... That thing on our laps. If we can't look at it and say, you know what, this is God's word, this is the truth, then we won't believe no matter what miracle it's shown. Even if someone was to rise from the dead, people won't believe because of the miracle. So ultimately, God delivers his own, and he's able to, to withhold Jehoram for later on when God's judgment will come. Here's why that's important. It's important for us to realize that concept that God knows how to deliver his own. He knows how to deliver his own. Even if there's some place they're not supposed to be. Even if they've made a mistake, God still there. And he still guides Jehoshaphat. And he still takes care of him. Jehoshaphat has a long reign. Most of the wicked king's reigns are short. So for us, we find ourselves in life and we're out doing things for the Lord, serving the Lord, we find ourselves in places where we think, man, I'm in the wrong place, I blew it, I made a bad decision, you know, I didn't really seek the Lord on this or whatever. We can always call on the name of the Lord because God wants to reveal His will in our life so that we can then say, all right, I'm going to follow, I'm going to go where the Lord wants me to go. In the old days, they had to find a prophet to do it. But today... We can all enter boldly in before the throne of grace and make our requests known to God. God wants to guide us. He wants to reveal His will. He's not trying to keep a secret or make it difficult. But we have to come to the place where we want to say, Hey, I need to seek the Lord. I need to go before Him. And sometimes that means we got to be still and we got to be quiet and we got to allow God to speak. I want you to think of this. The disciples, 120 disciples, Jesus told them all, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you have been endowed with power. And then once you have the power that I'm going to give you from the Holy Spirit, then I want you to go forth. How long did they wait? The Bible says they sat in that upper room 
and prayed for 10 days. So take a look at your longest prayer time, seeking the Lord and direction from Him and power from Him and healing from Him and anything from Him, whatever you're seeking the Lord for. And tell me, have you ever wanted to have the Lord speak to you so bad that you got down and prayed for 10 days? Because that's what they did. And God moved in their life with power. But if we're honest, most of us will say a quick prayer. We'll say, Lord, save me or Lord, help me. And not that God doesn't answer those prayers. But, but it, does it show that my heart is seeking after the Lord? In Jeremiah 29, the Lord says, You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. To me, those guys for 10 days, man, that's seeking with all your heart. Or how about this? Three kings full of armies with no water in the middle of a desert. I'm imagining when you're calling on the name of the Lord, you're real serious about it. Because you don't got long, right? If there's no water, you're not marching back out of there. There was seven days. It's seven days to water. You're not marching seven days to water. So what? You end up having to go after the Lord with your whole heart. Now, only Jehoshaphat was, but there was one. And so God poured out. That's important for us here because we're desiring to see God pour out. And if we as God's people will make a decision to seek God that way, singleness of heart, like, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here and call on your name until you move, until you fill me with power, until you give me your word, until you do whatever you're going to do, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just seeking you. And we do that, and we will experience an incredible awakening. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word, God. And I pray you give us eyes to see as we study, as we uh, just search the scriptures, Lord. I pray you just continue to show us, Lord, the things that you want to do in and through us. And Lord, you, we, we read stories about Elisha and we think, wow, look at the power and look at the wisdom and look at the direction. But the Bible would tell us of Elijah, who is his, is his greater, that he was a man just like us. What set him apart was, the Bible says in the book of James, he prayed. He prayed. Elijah prayed and it stopped raining. Elijah prayed and it started raining. Elijah prayed and fire came out of heaven and devoured a sacrifice. Elijah prayed and God moved because Elijah sought the Lord with an undivided heart. Lord, I pray that as we come before you and we see these stories and we see you move, that we would learn the messages behind them, that God knows how to deliver us, that he knows what we need, that he knows where our steps should lie. If we're thirsty, if we're saying, Lord, I feel like I'm in the desert, I'm dying of thirst, I need something from you, we just got to have a heart willing to seek him. Willing to seek him and say, that's my primary focus. I just am going after the Lord with everything that is within me. Everything that I have, I'm seeking him. God, that's how we want to come after you. We want to see you move. Lord Jesus, we want to see you do your perfect work. We want to see your name glorified. We want to see people come to faith, lives radically changed. We want to see you turn our world upside down. 
And if we want to see it, then we got to be people committed to pray. To pray. To seek you. So, Lord God, we pray that you would instill with us the patience and endurance, the strength that we need to seek you like that. For we are in need of an awakening. And our nation is in need of an awakening. And God, we pray that you'll do it. We seek you, Lord Jesus. We believe you. And we're coming after you with all we have. Seeking that move, that empowerment. Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.